And welcome to a very exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is normally your Monday morning X-Men podcast where I, Zach Jenkins, uh, and my co-host Adam Reck talk about three X-Men stories and rank them, but we're not doing that today. Because today we have a very special guest. This guest is the author of such fabulous works as Hawkeye and Captain Phasma. And Rogan Gambit. It's Kelly Thompson. Kelly, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. We're very excited to have you. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to be cool. I was actually just rereading uh, Rogan Gambit number one, which came out last week, as you listen to this. Maybe a week and a half ago, if you listen to this in the future. Who knows? And uh, Yeah. It just got me more pumped for this because this is this is exciting. It's such it's so weird to have a book like this coming out, but I'm happy for it. Thanks. Why do you think it's weird? Just because you feel like it's not in sync with the kind of stuff you're seeing these days or. okay. so I think why this is refreshing is because, um, you know, Zach and I have talked a lot on the show about our uh, love for Christina Strain's Gen X and how I think we wish that there was aside from. Um, just blue and gold that there might be more of an exploration of what's right. going on elsewhere in the X universe. And so this is really nice. And it's also really cool to see rogue back from uncanny Avengers. So um, can, do you just want to talk a little bit about how this, you know, came, came about how it came to be? Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what I know. Um, <laughs> I think, um, I mean, first of all, I'll say, you know, I tend to agree obviously in the sense that, uh, Rogue is an X-Man. She should be with the X-Men. It's, you know, it's it's core to her character. It's core to her being. But I think anyone that's a fan of the character would be hard-pressed to say that on the whole she hasn't been treated really well by her association with the Avengers. I mean, that's been a really high-profile thing for her. Yeah. But I think for the most part, for the most part, she's done really well there. Oh, sure. Um certainly at least as well as she has in the X-Men, which is to say not every story is equal in quality. Right. And that's not to throw, that's not to throw things under the bus. Uh, I'm not going to name any names or anything or any specific stories. And it's not even true for every fan. I mean, like something I hate someone else loves. So, you know, it's not like there's a, it's, it's a highly subjective thing. But I think we can all agree that there's an unevenness in any ongoing narrative like that. And so has everything that's happened for her in Uncanny Avengers been great? No. Um, But overall, I think it's really raised her profile and been really good for her. Um, But yeah, of course, it's great to see her back in the fold. You know, it's it's where anyone who's a core Rogue fan probably wants her to be. It's just natural to feel that way, I think. One of the things that was refreshing to me having Rogue come back here is that this isn't a big end of the world punching story. This 
for most of the issue is Rogan Gambit in various places talking about their personal relationship, which is to me one of the most interesting developments in X-Men, you know, post Claremont is getting those two together and figuring out the I can't, I must of their entire relationship together. I mean, I've always said that my ideal X book is mostly just characters sitting around talking about their feelings who happen to also have knives in their hands and laser eyes. I totally agree. And I think a lot of X-Men fans feel that way. Although I think, you know, we don't want to be disingenuous. If it was just that all the time, we'd be annoyed. Like, I think it's, it's more enjoyable to have those moments when you've earned them by putting them through the ringer, right? It's like, it's like I get super emotional at the end of, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy in that, that final moment, because man, did you earn that? All those people having survived and being there together and lovers reunited and everything, because these people have been through hell, right? And so I think that's one of the things, seeing the X-Men play softball or have brunch together at the lake house. That's like a favorite old timey issue of mine when they're all there in the rain and Gambit makes his joke about, I knew wearing this trench coat would come in handy one day or whatever. Like the, you know, there's, there's these fun little things, but part of the reason they work is because of what you put them through to get there. And then like seeing them come together again as a family and have those really earned moments. I think that's part of what makes it work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm here for the soap opera S-ness of it. Uh, totally. Um, I think, so they were going to do, I had been talking to various editors and Axel about things, um, books that I liked, characters that I liked, what I wanted to do, and something we had been working on together sort of fell apart. And, but I had sort of mentioned Rogue and Gambit as like a favorite thing. And then it sort of came up in the process of that, well, we've been thinking of doing a Rogue and Gambit book. You know, so you'd be interested in that. And I was like, I mean, yes, who do I have to kill? Who do I have to push out of the way? Like, what do I have to do? So um, so then, yeah, when it came time when they were ready to hear pitches, they let me go for it. And um, it was, <laughs> you know, my poor my poor editor, Darren, because from our first conversation, you know, my approach was just you know, I just want to do like a really fun caper for them. Like they've never had a book together before. Like we should really just run with that. And, you know, it'll be sort of like moonlighting meets the X-Men and it'll be great. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was like so on board with the lightness of that. And then I went off and did a bunch of rereading and, and reading too, but mostly it was rereading of stuff. And when I came back to him, I had this totally different pitch. And he was like, um, I'm not saying I don't like this. He's like, but what happened? And he's like, I mean, I see the elements we talked about here, but there's also all this other stuff. And I was like, Darren, what happened was I reread all of this. And there is just an avalanche of, of these characters being treated in sort of the same way that I think... Mm -hmm. Anything we do is just going to feel like more of the same unless we make a bold strike in a different direction. And I was like, and I'm not saying I don't want to play with the nostalgia. Like you and I have talked a lot about that and I'm interested in that. Um, but I'm also interested in carving a new path. Otherwise, what are we doing? Like, why does this story matter for the characters, for the fans, 
for comics. Like, what's the point? I don't want us to just make a fishy mini that's forgotten. Um, and he reluctantly agreed. <laughs> and we started workshopping what I had turned in to sort of meet in the middle between the first idea that was very sort of basic meat and potatoes superhero comics with a with a hint of romance to my sort of like esoteric I don't know pointed more at the Mr. Miracle sort of area and then we sort of met in the middle there on what it should be hmm. I'll, I'll I'll say that's the I never thought I would think of, oh, yeah, the Rogan Gambit comic inspired by, you know, the Mr. Miracle type stuff that Tom King and Mitch Gerard is doing. <laughs> but somehow I could see that happening. It's just, you know, and it's yeah, funny that's... when I was pitching that I ended up somehow I don't even remember how it happened. I ended up talking to Brian Michael Bendis and Tom King that I was working on this pitch and it was sort of killing me because there was this stuff that I wanted to do. And there was the thing that I felt I was being asked to do. Not even that I was being asked, but that they wanted, right? And and I was really having trouble mm -hmm. sort of meeting the things in the middle. And they didn't even know what I was talking about. Like, I didn't tell them what book or anything. And they were like, do the scariest thing. Do the thing that you don't think you can do. Do the thing that they don't think they want. You just sell it. Just do it. And I was like, it's really easy for Tom King and Brian Michael Bendis <laughs> to say, you guys. I was like, my name is Kelly Thompson. And uh, I don't get to just do whatever I want to do. And they were like, that's bullshit. Just do it. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, so, yeah, they, um, I mean, Mr. Miracle wasn't really out yet. I just knew when I was pitching, I just knew sort of what it was going to be. And I'm a big fan of Mr. Miracle and Big Barda and that relationship. And I know what Tom King can do and what Matt Fraction did with Hawkeye. And I was just interested in doing something that sort of, I don't know, hopefully blends between those two worlds of being just like fun superhero comics, but that also is something that has something to say about love and life and relationships and um that's got if you want it that has a more esoteric layer to it so here we are and that's what those first three pages are about about i mean you know i feel like those pages very few people are talking about them except for that 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 opening double page spread is so gorgeous as it is um very, you know, I feel like people are enjoying the comics so much that nobody is circling back to what the hell are these first three pages about? And I'm completely fine with that. That's a success to me because I want people to be able to enjoy it without thinking about what those three pages mean. Not everybody has to care what those first three pages mean, but I think for the people that do care, there's going to be a separate layer that's also enjoyable we'll see oh man now, now you got me really curious <laughs> now for the people who don't have a copy of rogan gambit in front of them those first three pages the first one is a nine panel grid that just says if time is a circle then everything is happening between i believe cuts of black and then different very tight shots of rogan gambit and then it busts out to this double page spread that is gorgeous that uh you're uh artist uh, Pepe Perez. Is that correct? Perry. Perry Perez. Perry Perez, excuse me, that he draws that has all of these moments like a shattered stained glass window of Gambit and Rogue's relationships in Gambit and Rogue in the center. 
and it just says the only caption says once you know if times a circle everything's happening at once and then it cuts to the uh story proper and it's one it's beautiful art and it's beautiful just use of comics as a format like that being a page turn it's not the best page turn in this book but in any other book it would be uh thank it's, you well you yes but come on that smash cut at the very end literally made <laughs> me drop the book and laugh thank you so much <laughs> i had to explain that cut to someone on twitter this week and it really upset me that like that, that that was happening not not because oh i didn't I, I don't know. I, I mean, everyone's, how do I say this without being rude? Um, everyone's understand, everyone's understand, everyone comes to comics with a different understanding, with a different, um, you know, vocabulary for what you're going to read. And it's hard to remember sometimes as a writer that not everyone's at the same level. And I'm not even sure what my mm -hmm. responsibility is as a writer to, to play to all of that. I mean, obviously to be successful, you'd like to, appeal to the to the widest group of potential readers because you want everyone to like and enjoy your work and you want to sell a lot of copies and everything but you know there is a point where i'm like listen I, if you don't know what a smash cut is and you didn't get it like I, I i can't really help you there like i don't know why you thought you were missing pages in your comic book like it's a really like it's a really common technique you see it all the time like you know there are a ton of cuts throughout that whole book that didn't bother you and then the smash cut just because it's more abrupt i guess it's like you, you're confused i was like I, I don't know what to do so i'm glad you guys liked it i like it i think it's a great cut i think it's i think it's real strong and actually it makes me want to jump to a different point kind of pulling back your history and unless you were reading bylines on comic book articles for a while, <laughs> some people may not know this, uh, but you actually came to comics from being a critic, from being someone working uh, as a freelancer primarily for CBR, I believe. Yeah. yeah like I remember back in the heyday of 2005 <laughs> reading articles. Uh, I, I honestly, I don't even remember what your column was, but I remember you were one of the voices that I was like, Oh yeah, this is a person who's writing. I, enjoy and then saw that you got uh the what was it the captain marvel uh, you co-wrote yeah, that yeah, uh for yeah. the secret war series yeah and then explodes from there so what was that journey like going from writing about comics and being a critic to then you know having to be the person who knows what is going to be criticized right. and how to well, handle you're that. dating me a little bit let's just be clear i didn't start writing for cbr until 2009 and I didn't really start writing reviews till 2011, I think, maybe. Maybe 2010. Um, Did I say 05? You said 05. I meant 15. Okay. I am no, so no, no, no. I started writing um, <laughs> She Has No Head for CBR uh, in 2009, I think. Um, and then that grew into um, doing reviews for CBR a little bit later. And I will say that, and this is not really what you asked, but it's part of what I want to say, I guess, which is I learned more reading comics and writing reviews about them than I did doing any other thing. <laughs> um, because it just forces you to look at both good and bad stuff and really think about it critically. And, um, you know, some reviews are just plot synopsis, which drives me crazy. But um, most of the good people who do reviews know that, you know, you need to critically look at the work. And um, CBR was very 
you know, I would say that when they were doing reviews, rated reviews, they were at the top of the class on that. And um, I learned a ton about comics doing that. And I, I, but, but so it was a weird journey in a way because I went to school to study comics. So I was always on that path that I thought I was going to write comics, at least in part that that would be part of my career. I never thought I would write about them or write reviews of them. It was just a thing that happened on the way because I happened to have, you know, something to say, uh, about some of the things that were happening. Sometimes it was controversial. Sometimes it was just boring. Um, I will say that I can't regret it because it brought me so much knowledge, but it is very hard to look back as a creator at some of my reviews. And it's not even that I disagree with the reviews, but it's just that, I don't know. I just feel like I'd be more careful with the way I phrase things. There's also a lack of knowledge about sort of how the sausage is made. Like any reviewer, you know, as a reviewer, you're sort of like a quarter of a foot of a step inside the circle of knowing how all that happens. But like, you still don't really know. You still don't really know what's editorial mandated and how that process works and what happens between a script to the final analysis. You don't really think about the solicitation process and how all of that works. And, you know, I think, you know, particularly some reviews I wrote of like the James Asmus Clay Man Gambit series. Like when I look back and read that book now, I'm like, oh, this book's really good. I was too hard on this book as a critic. And I think it, a lot of it came from, you know, not understanding like, oh, why did man's art look rushed in these places? Or why did they have to have fill-ins? Well, it's because of these crazy deadlines or because someone got behind or this was editorial mandated. And like, I really feel like as a reviewer, I wasn't kind enough in how I treated the creators. Like if that's what I would change, I wouldn't go back and undo it because I learned so much, but I do wish I could go back and be a little more kind and have a little more perspective. Um, I mean, I never tried to be cruel on purpose, but you know, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to get to, wow, this reviewer is making a lot of assumptions that just aren't found in evidence. Like, I think, I think that happens a lot. So um, as for how I made the leap from one to the other, I mean, you know, it just took years. I was working, I was writing reviews and freelancing, but I was also working in my spare time. I was doing a graphic novel, Heart in a Box, with um, Meredith McLaren, a creator-owned thing that eventually got published with Dark Horse. I was sort of working on that, and I was making connections, and I was talking to editors, and um, it was through some of those connections that I was able to get the opportunity for Gem. And, you know, that seemed totally independent of the other work I was doing in the sense that I sort of got it. I sort of got it because I was, I knew Sophie Campbell and we were talking and everything, but truth is, um, I don't know that I would have been able to get that job if I hadn't have been able to show them you know, Heart in a Box wasn't published yet, but we had like 90 pages done and they could look at it and go, okay, this girl knows how to write. She's not gonna, you know, she maybe doesn't know monthly comics yet. So there's a risk there, but she knows how to write comics and that's, you know, whatever. So a lot of things had to sort of all happen at once. And then I had to put in years of time and eventually it all worked out. <laughs> well, congratulations. I think that's pretty exciting. Um, if we can go even more macro, I mean, our podcast is all about just looking 
at the entire continuity stream of which I certainly don't know everything. Part of the reason I signed on to this show is to learn about stories that I had never read within the X universe. What are your, you know, like, how did you come to X-Men um, and how did you fall in love with these characters? Have you always been an X-Men fan or is, um, is learning about Rogue and Gambit something that's relatively new? For no, you? no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm of the class of so many of us are that found the X-Men through the animated series when I was a teenager. Um, so my mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. you know, my brother and I were watching cartoons Saturday morning. The first thing we saw was Rogue flying through that mall, punching a sentinel in the face. And I was like, what <laughs> is this? <laughs> <laughs> and he, we're like looking at each other. We're like, what is this? We don't know what this is. This is amazing. And we were like immediately smitten. And I don't know if it was that week or a couple weeks later, he came home from the mall just like screaming at me. He's like, look, look, it's the girl from that show. And he had X-Men um, 290 in his hands. Uncanny X-Men 290. It's that Storm in the Rain cover. And so that became the first comic I ever read. My little brother, David, who didn't care as much about the show and wasn't as big a reader at the time as we were, he also had a comic. It was X-Force number three. So that became my second comic I ever read. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but I own both of those now because I'm the geek. So, uh, I mean, there, there are geeks a little bit, but Scott especially. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, those are my comics now is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was that was it. That was it. My life was over. Dramatic shift. My parents' very worst nightmare that I was now like that was my introduction to monthly floppies. And, you know, I had that first experience. One of my first experiences, my first experience going to an actual comic book store included we were both allowed to buy. I mean, I probably have my own pocket money because I was a teen, but like we were allowed to buy a few comics each. Um, My mother had no idea what she was in for at that point. And, um, so Scott, my brother and I both got X-Men one, but with the different covers, but we oh. didn't, but we didn't know. So we're already looking through it and we're all excited, whatever. And then we're in the car and I see what he's reading and I'm like, that's mine. And he's <laughs> like, this is mine. And I'm like, no, it's not. I was reading that story. And I'm like looking at the pages and like, but look at this cover. I bought this cover. And, uh. Yeah, that was my introduction to variant covers. Was uh, us oh yelling, God. yelling so at great. each other in the car over uh, X Men number one. So yeah, I mean, I became that was my whole world. Then that was it. I was done for, and uh, X Men was pretty much the intro to that. And so they're sort of my first and last love. And uh, you know, I had X Men twenty four. I bought multiple copies of that. I not only had a copy of X Men number twenty four framed in my teenage bedroom. But I bought another copy that I like cut up and made a collage that I framed, like hardcore, oh hardcore nerd all the way. For for the people who do not have an encyclopedic knowledge of the covers of <laughs> X Men Volume Two, like I, what I, are I'm they not doing gonna, listening to this cast? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to shame anyone who doesn't. I knew what this cover was, Adam. I'm guessing you knew what this cover was. It's Rogan Gambit. Not just <laughs> yes. Uh... Rogan Gambit uh, looking like maybe they're going to make yes. out. Maybe not. We'll so see. Hot. Totally the most iconic X-Men Rogan Gambit cover of all time. It's pretty shocking yeah. how few there are, really. There's there's not a ton. Uh, between, you know, what Chris Anka is doing on your covers, uh, there's about to be five really good ones. So that's yes. always nice. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love his cover for number three. 
that's that's the uh, heart with all of the rogues yeah. and gambits, right? Yeah, yeah, that one's very good. Turns out he's a bit talented at comics. Who knew? <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but one of the, one of the things that it kind of brings up is Gambit as a character. Now, I have often described Gambit as exactly what an eleven year old is going to think is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> but he has a uh, he has a bad habit of reading as a bit of a creepo, bit of a creepazoid in you know, modern context. So how do you, how do you go about writing a gambit who is still, still gambit, still exactly what you would expect from the nineties cartoon, but not a dirty sleazebag man. Well, I mean, I think it's tricky. And I think if you ask some people, I wasn't entirely successful in that. I mean, not everyone agrees. Um, Not everyone agrees that he's not creepy. I read more than a few comments and reviews and things where people are like, oh my God, he's so creepy. Leave her alone. She clearly doesn't want it. And I'm like, are we reading the same book? Like she clearly is interested. I, I think the, the prob- the disconnect for me is I absolutely see how Gambit can be and maybe is creepy out of context. In the context of this is your ex who you've been in love with and out of love with maybe just in love with it's hard to tell for for us it's decades for them it's five years I don't I don't know what it's been um that changes the dynamic completely and it also doesn't you know you also have to keep in mind that his continual pursuit of her and flirting with her which makes a few people feel not so great that's what's worked with her in the past. And I mean, I don't, I don't know, like maybe it's too much to ask people to consider context. That was always something I talked a lot about on She Has No Head that you have to consider context in all these scenarios. Um, you know, have you ever been in love? Have you ever had an ex? Like put yourself in these shoes. Like, you know how complicated that becomes and you know that you know that person so well and that you know how to read them and you know what works with them for good and ill. You know how to push their buttons. You know, like her messing with him on the plane, talking about Deadpool. Like, she's not trying to be cruel. And she's also not actually saying Deadpool's a better kisser. She's knowing that that will annoy the crap out of him, which I think Perret nailed the expression on her face. And it can't. I can't believe that some people miss that. But there's like, oh my God, she's saying he's not a good kisser. And I'm like, really? Look at her face. She just knows that that will super annoy him. Like, like, I don't know. So the nuance can be lost. I just wanted to say that that um, is one of my favorite scenes in the issue. The issue feels so refreshing, I think, because the way you're describing the relationship um, is so on point. And the fact that it gets literalized a little bit by the fact that this arc is at least I'm assuming I haven't read any more issues in the first is going to take place at Mm -hmm. this, um, you know, creepy couples retreat. The idea that they are going to a couples retreat in the first place is such a great idea. Um, And uh, just about that scene in particular, I just, I was a huge fan of, of that particular run on uncanny Avengers um, when cable came back and uh, it's Duggan and Lara is just like completely killing it on that um, series is the idea of the couple's retreat, like, was that where you first decided to go? Or was that something that evolved out of your thinking about what the two characters' relationship was and where that I needed to go? The, 
So I haven't said this anywhere else, and I've been hesitant to say it, but I'm going to say it. I've decided to say it. So we get an exclusive is what I'm hearing. You you are. You are getting an exclusive. <laughs> um, try not to be too big a deal of it, because it's sort of spoiler-ish for the kind of things that are coming in a, in a way, right? So this was the second pitch my idea was, you know, it's classic X-Men comics meets Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh. So the idea became, for the couple's retreat, became, I don't want to tell the same story that's been told with these guys, but it's impossible to deal with all this complex continuity in a way that's going to be engaging for anyone, new or old readers and not feel like a rehash um, unless I can actually lean into it and make it the plot. So, so literally what's going on in this island and how our characters end up dealing with it is it literally forces them to address their history, right? But not in a continuity heavy way. I mean, listen, we'll see. It's an experiment. Maybe I've got it all wrong. I will. We'll know a little bit more after two comes out because we'll have gotten a taste of like where it's headed. I think. Um, but like ignoring it to me doesn't work because it just. Mm-hmm. First of all, there's so much good to great stuff there that you do want to have in there, right? Like a complex relationship is delicious because it gives you like that moment on the plane, which is my favorite moment in the issue because it feels really real. That's the way exes talk to each other. That's the way couples engage. That's their own personal language that they have together. And we love it because it's relatable. It's how we are. Right. Um, I think the people that it doesn't land for, maybe they have less experience with that kind of thing. And and that's not a judgment. That's just, we all have different relationships, but it's definitely geared towards people who have been there and who can relate to, oh man, I've so said those things, or I've so had those kind of things said to me and it's so painful, but it's a thing you have to go through. And so sort of losing the thread here as I'm talking, but, um, Oh no. <laughs> but I think that, leaning into that but doing it in a way I guess it's to say the trick we're trying to use is more of that sort of double page spread which is a way that I mean it's not going to be that repeated every time but it's a way to kind of bring that in to acknowledge that there's all of this backstory for them but to also push it out of the way and say it doesn't really matter because this is how these characters feel about each other now. And this is where they're headed if they can get past all that crap. And why would we keep bringing that? Like, let's just deal with it and like carve this new path. So that's sort of what it's about. But they, but they also have to save the day. I don't want to undercut that. There's also people disappearing. There's a mystery to be solved. There's a lot of fighting and punching that's going to happen. But it's all on the landscape of this super complicated layered many years relationship right i i think i think that's oh real goodness. interesting and 
I don't think there's anyone reading comics today that hasn't seen this big trend between DC Rebirth and the X-Line Resurrection and the Marvel Legacy stuff. That's comics have this at minimum 50, if not 70, 80 year history to try and deal with in trying to find the balance of dealing with that nostalgia and dealing with the continuity and stuff that is really appealing to a lot of people. Like I'm a guy who digs into minutia of X-Men continuity. I loved being able to look on that double page spread and said, and this is from that issue. And this right. is from that issue. And this is from extreme X-Men. And I did not know we were going to bring that up, but that's fine. <laughs> and this is from here and here and here versus like, I've got, I've got a cousin. He's like 13 and he's just getting into mm-hmm. comics and there's no way for him to try and understand, well, this actually happened in this issue of Marvel Team-Up 100 that you have to know so that you can know all of these characters' relationships for this comic 40 years yeah. later. It's such an interesting way to see a bunch of different creators try and tackle that problem all at once because it feels like you know, for the big two superhero side of the industry at least, everyone's trying to unwrap yeah. that mystery. And for what it's worth, I think – I think Rogan Gambit is one of the more successful ones, one issue in of balancing that. It's been a big delight. Thank you. I think that it's it's an experimental book in a way. It's an experimental book wrapped in a traditional superhero book. And um, whether we're going to be successful or not is honestly still a question mark. But we have a lot of things going f- in our favor. Number one to me is that I am that old fan, right? That loves all that stuff and loves an Easter egg and that loves the reference and whatever. But I'm also sort of the lapsed fan in the sense that I haven't kept up with everything over the years and I haven't liked everything over the years. I had to go back and read and reread to be like, well, then what is this thing? What is this weird path? And our editor, Darren, and this might on the surface seem like a bad thing, but you know, he moved over from the Spider-Man office. So He's not super up to speed on the intense uh, complexity of these characters and their history, but that works in our favor because when I turn in a script and he's like, Kelly, what is this about? I know I've gone way too far and I know that I can reel us back into what a new reader needs and what works for them and what's emotionally resonant for them as well as the sort of super fan, right? Um because I do think, I think that's the literally the hardest balance that comics has to strike uh, as an ongoing um, storytelling, you know, a medium that has an ongoing storytelling. It makes it incredibly hard to climb in. And, you know, as an industry, we're constantly like relaunching books and canceling books and starting a new book over here. And it all feels sort of desperate. And we're part of that. Like, I, I, I don't, there's not a criticism of that. It's just we're all looking for that magic thing that can both bring in the new reader and also satisfy the longtime fan. And it's really hard to do. And I hope we're coming really close, but I think we'll have to see. I think the first issue seems like it's done that really well. We'll see if we can maintain that through the end. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree that I think you're striking the right balance. I mean, I, I picked this up and I'm reading it and going, oh, right. man, this kind right. of feels like. X-Men number eight, the picnic issue (laughs) at the same time that it feels really fresh and new. Um, I really appreciate you. You also said that you want there to be a mystery 
about this. And as someone who's just starting to dig through um, your your Hawkeye run, I want to compliment you on that. Um, my favorite aspects of the the Fraction run were always the Kate Bishop stuff. So I love that. Um, and there's there's a Hawkeye annual that that Fraction did with Madame Mask. And what you're doing there seems like such a natural extension um, from what I loved about that series. Um, I, I just have to compliment you. I think it's a really fantastic Thank you so much. Uh, run so far. You're doing a great job. Yeah. Well, speaking of Hawkeye, speaking of Hawkeye, which is very good and is low-key the spiritual successor to the Matt Fraction run, which is my favorite run of comics ever. Me too. And Me too. people should just, just friggin' read it. Yeah. I... You had a X connection in there that some of our readers may have missed <laughs> where the one true Wolverine, Laura <laughs> Kenny, uh, and her pet Wolverine, I say pet like he's not a partner, Jonathan, <laughs> teamed up with Kate Bishop, Hawkeye, the one true Hawkeye, and Lucky, the pizza dog. Yes. And don't forget Gabby. And Gabby. How could I forget Gabby? <laughs> who now has a name. Finally yes. has a great name in Huddy Badger. The greatest name ever. <laughs> it's insane how good that name is. Because let me tell you what, I've spent months trying to think of names in scenarios for superheroes. And it's impossible because there's so many out there. And Honey Badger, that's the best superhero name to come out. The most perfectly fitting superhero name to come out of comics in a long ass time. Yeah, I immediately read it. I said, oh, yes, this is correct. Why were we not doing this 20 issues ago? This is perfect. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> But with that, how did how did the team up of wanting to use Laura in that kind of story come about? Because that Kate Bishop run has beyond standard superhero, you know, weirdness been fairly grounded and hasn't had a lot of characters with knife hands. So right, right, right. Um, I think that I, the, I mean, the number one reason I mean, we knew we had a standalone issue we had to do and. So I started thinking about what's that going to be? Who would I love to show up guest star? That's my best opportunity for a guest star. Cause I knew that after that we were rolling into legacy, which was going to have Clint. And so I knew it didn't, it shouldn't be Clint, but who should it be? We've got this one opportunity. Um, and I knew we would probably be canceled after legacy. So I thought it's our, my one shot. Who do I want it to be? And I, because I would have done America but Kate had just showed up in her book. And so that didn't seem super original. Right. And so I thought who belongs here is sort of the least who is, who would be great to play off of Kate? Um, you know, because I, I think there's this thing where fans always want similar characters to end up in a book together. And that's the worst mm -hmm. idea. Like yeah. you need, they, you need, you need the zany character has to have a straight man. Like, I mean, it's the odd couple, like need that. Um, if everyone is throwing out one liners, it's, you know, it's a mess. So, um, and Laura is though clever and brilliant. And one of my favorite characters, she's, she's laconic. She's, she's straight laced. She's not cracking jokes. Yeah. And so that's a perfect combo for Kate um, I knew Michael Walsh was going to be drawing. I knew he would have a hell of a time with it. And, uh, and I thought Gabby would be a really fun element as well because we've got um, Gabby is more like Kate in some ways than she is like Laura. And so there's this nice bridge between them. And then of course we get two super pets sort of thing. 
So it was just, it was just all win from go. And I'm a huge, huge fan of Tom Taylor's work. And I love what he's been doing on all new Wolverine, his all new Wolverine annual, um, that had spider Gwen in it. It's I was going to mention that. So good. I just laughed constantly. So, um, so it was a pretty quick decision to be honest. And it was just like, what's the, what's the functional plot I can put in here that makes sense that we're not going to have to spend a lot of time on because really we're just going to want to see these guys sort of kicking ass and being funny together. And the obvious thing was clones because that's what Kate's been dealing with and it's been making her life hell. And yet that's what Laura and Gabby are. And so it was just all these sort of magical things started happening as soon as it started coming together. I love that issue so much. Yeah, it does feel akin to that uh, that all new Wolverine annual. They're they're kind of bookended yeah, in bit. a little bit, which that uh, bit where they're hanging they're, they're upside the down. I don't even care if it doesn't like. No, I didn't call out that the cuffs are adamantium, and so that's why they can't cut. They're like, like just just <laughs> just enjoy it, people. Just enjoy the yeah. scenario. Just enjoy the jokes. Just trust that Laura and Gabby are smart enough that if they were able to cut those cuffs off, they would have. And just let them make a joke about cutting off their feet. Just let it happen. Let the let the happiness wash over you. <laughs> I feel like if people just decided to enjoy comics a bit more, we'd mm. all yes. be happier. Yes. Oh, sure. Just, just, just not saying turn your brain off, not saying don't think critically about the book. I just I, enjoy it. Go in with that mindset and it's not be happy just with that to me. It's also prioritize, right? Like, because I'm the first one to be like, that doesn't make any sure. sense. Like, why didn't they think this plot out? Like, why, why, you know, characters don't do that. Or like, I get mad if they sort of act out of character or something. So I, I, I don't want us to just kind of wave away, but like prioritize what you're supposed to be getting from the scene and if it works and would you have enjoyed the book more if we jammed in one more balloon to make sure you know that the handcuffs are made of adamantium and so they can't cut them like what does that get you yeah. that's so important right They're and if it doesn't doing, make the book right. that much more enjoyable then just let it go man don't argue about it for three pages on a forum <laughs> somewhere just let just enjoy it <laughs> No, that, that is great that, that's life advice for people. <laughs> I also noticed in Hawkeye 12 that uh, we are, we do get a little bit of a, a rogue joke in yes. on, on that same Deadpool scene um, yes. with was... Redpool. Um, so I can see the gears turning already for, for, your, uh, was, uh, for your turn with I Rogue. I was so excited Gambit, to get so. that joke nice in. Job there. And um, I saw some people talking about how Laura would never make – Laura doesn't gossip. She never would have said that. And I was like, yeah, but she's trying to distract Kate from like an actual problem. I was like, eh, all right. It's okay. They didn't get it, but I still think the joke is good. That's good. Now, the, the, the one thing we do like to do on the show, like we said at the start, and like anyone else who has this in their feed should know at this point, we talk about three comics and we rank them every, every other episode that we don't have <laughs> Kelly Thompson and or the equivalent on. So we wanted to solicit three, uh, Three suggestions from Kelly. What are three X-Men things that have been f formative to you that you have – that have really been you know, something that's kind of brought you up as an X-Men fan, as a comic creator, and as the writer of Rogan Gambit? So when you asked me this, I for some reason fixated on like arcs or storylines. Sure. I don't yes. know if that's what yes, you're no, That's exactly fine. what okay. I intended. Okay. Okay. Good. So, um, number one for me, 
and this will probably surprise no one who's reading Rogan Gambit, is the sort of Shi'ar Savage Land crossover that's like Uncanny X-Men 269 and then Uncanny X-Men 274 to 77. So I just include 69 as like the leap point of, of the rogue getting into the Savage Land thing, because then you've got, what is it? Extinction is in there, right? And then, yeah. and then you've got this Shi'ar storyline in space. And it intercuts between Rogue all on her own in the Savage Land, and that's sort of when she hangs out with Magneto, and when she loses her powers, and this really great Shi'ar um, uh, that just... I don't even know that it, there's anything so great about it. I mean, it has like mind control of characters, which I'm always into, and like brood, like people not being what they seem with, uh, you know, Xavier is under control and things like this. Um, but it also just has these sort of space elements, like they're all dressed up at some point in like Shi'ar costumes and X-Men pitted against each other. And it just has all the elements. It was a story I read very early on um, when I was like going in back issues to try and, you know, read everything about the X-Men once I had discovered them. And, you know, also got this great Jim Lee X-Men art um, from the 90s or maybe late 80s. I guess it's, I don't know which it is. Um and it just, I don't know, it's just sort of quintessential X-Men to me. Um, there are all these little things that I feel like make the X-Men work. Like there's these big, bold space things, but then there's also these like little interpersonal moments for the characters. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a formative... Um, when I think of X-Men, I nostalgically instantly leap back to that. Nice pick. Huh. That's great. Um, so then uh, Age of Apocalypse blew my mind as a teenager. Like, I don't know. I just... Very good. And people who dismiss it as weird 90s stuff with face tattoos need to critically reevaluate how solid that book is. They also need to think about that hadn't really been done not that way right to be mm -hmm. like to oh okay well we're just saying what happened if this guy died what does the world look like and now all our books look like that now and i mean that has less resonance now because you know we just saw something like that in battle world and it's just not as uncommon that someone would do a bold thing like that but my 16 year old brain exploded like, what do you mean? This is a totally different world. Rogue has a kid and she's with Magneto and it didn't work out with Gambit and Bishop is the only one who knows. And like, I mean, I was so into it. I was so into it. And even now, you know, I don't go back and reread it all the time, but it was a it was a game changer for me as how I thought about comics and how I thought about them as a writer too. like the things you could do, you know? Kelly, was there a, a specific book of the Age of Apocalypse, um, you know, relaunch that really stood out to you? The one that you were kind of obsessed well, with? Well, I mean, I was a rogue fan, died from day one. So Astonishing was sort of, I think, the one I would pick out as being the most um, influential to me. And it also had that that Joe, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name even now. Uh, okay. Joe Mad, yeah. Joe, there Joe you go. Mad, Joe Mad art, which I loved as a teenager. Um, 
I think the gambit in the externals concept was really interesting. Uh, the art didn't work for me as much there um, mm. then or sort of in retrospect, it still doesn't really. Um, but I sort of like the idea of that. But it's funny because you can see my bias, at least as a teenager, even if I've let it go now. But like, I always found it really interesting being with Magneto, even though I preferred her to be with Gambit back then, for sure. But I really was mad at 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 Lila Cheney for like trying to be with Gambit. That, that like I, I, I still hold that shit against her a little bit from 20 years ago in an alternate reality. How dare she? How dare she? I don't care that Rogue has a kid with somebody else. How dare she? Get out of the way, Lila. That's really funny. That's that's amazing. I held on to a lot of biases for Rogue. Um, I didn't like Dazzler ever because she and Rogue used to have beef when I first read those books. And then I got to write her in A-Force and I totally fell in love and I felt like I should write Dazzler a letter and be like, I'm sorry I was such a jerk for all those years. I love you now. (laughs) And uh, a little bit with Carol too because I had – so, you know, I knew that yeah. Rogue was the bad guy in that scenario, so I was less... She did steal her brain. I mean, I mean you, like, Rogue wasn't she, a saint no, Rogue here. Rogue was never a saint. I think that's why it's a little annoying that she can't give Gambit a bit more of a pass on some of his... Um, not his philander, because I'm, I'm not down for that, but, like, the mistakes he made. It's like, bitch, you, you made some mistakes. <laughs> like, you were a bad guy. Maybe you could keep a little perspective yeah. here. <sighs> <laughs> that's great that's awesome and then what was the last book so it's gotta be and this book brought me back to superhero comics after a sort of long absence it was uh Whedon and cassidy's astonishing x-men mm. um i think that the new x-men stuff the morrison and quietly is like bolder and weirder and I sort of appreciate it so much although i think it sort of got mangled at the end there but pound for pound like emotional resonance and how much I cared about the characters. Uh, Astonishing X-Men was one of those stories that just, ah, just killed me. I loved Emma in that book. I thought she was so good. I thought her relationship with Scott was so good. It introduced one of my still today favorite characters of armor um, into comics. It, uh, it, it really developed I'm not really a big Kitty Pride fan. I never have. Been. I've, mm. I've I've warmed to her over the years. Um, you know, I know Kitty Pride is a lot of people's rogue, yeah. like how they came into comics. They really love her. And uh, she's just never really been that for me. But um, Astonishing really made me care about her. Like the 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 tete she had with Emma was just so great and so on point, you know. Uh, oh, were you late? Yeah, I was busy remembering to put on all my clothes. Like, I mean, that stuff is amazing, <laughs> right? And then it's got such a great heroic arc oh, yeah. for her. Like, I'm not a big buyer, period. Certainly not for comics. Like, you really got to get me to make me cry at a comic. And I think I cried twice in Astonishing. First, when Peter Ooh, appeared. Yeah. And, and, and really, Kitty's reaction to his appearance was the thing, right? him running through like i still can't get that panel out of my mind it was so great and then her her thing with the bullet at the end is just brutal brutal the sort of heroic sacrifice like maybe you're gonna die or maybe you'll be hurtling through space for the rest of your life like dying slowly in a bullet like it's insane it was such a great story yeah like her and her and emma's dialogue at the end there that uh impressed oh. Ms. Frost 
astonished Miss Pride. And it's like, look, sometimes it feels like you're forcing someone to say the name of the thing you're in. That's one of the best uses of that ever in the history of media. Just saying, oh yeah, this is astonishing X-Men right yeah, here. Yeah. And that's that 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 moment with them is such a magnificent that's exactly the thing to bring it back around. The thing we were talking about with like the soap opera-ness and the interpersonal relationships and like part of what makes that work is putting those characters through the ringer, right? So mm -hmm. that's a perfect payoff. Oh, these characters do not, they actively do not like each other. They do not respect each other. Or if they do, they wouldn't admit that they respect each other, right? But Emma is a chess player and she's putting things in places that they need to be, right? And, and Kitty's just annoyed with her and it's all going to pay off. And it's just like, just stay with us. Because there's so many downsides to... An, a long form ongoing storytelling like you lose so many readers especially these days and with comics being as expensive as they are for what you get quote unquote uh you lose a lot of readers before you get to the end but man if you can if you can long form pay that off like that uh it's so beautiful yeah i cried i never cried at comics i cried at that it was really great these are excellent picks kelly yeah Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited to <laughs> dig into some of these in an upcoming episode. And this is this has been a great interview. Uh, first of all, we want to say, Kelly Thompson, thank you for your time. I know we kept you a little late, but we I think we had some great conversation. I think that, you know, hopefully this is going to inspire everyone listening. If you haven't already done it, go buy Rogan Gambit number one. It's what you want in an X-Men comic if you're listening to this. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Good, good. Now to wrap things up, uh, everything that is done on Battle of the Atom is supported by the lovely folks on Patreon.com. If you go over to Patreon.com slash Xavier Files, uh, you, can, uh, you can support the show if you're able to. I get it. I can't support everything that I like in you know the internet and I guess the concept of things that are created. But if you can, at the $2 level, we, can, we will actually take one of your suggestions and craft an entire episode all around that. That's you know going to be a lot of fun. In fact, one of our next episodes we have is crafted around the men issue of Claremont's Uncanny, which we get to have a lot of fun talking about different times when X-Men just hung out together. And it's it's good. You can either do that or write an I, uh, you know, an X-Men book and then we'll have you on the show and then we'll just steal your answers that way and you don't have to give us money either way works one of them you have to build a career to do so <laughs> path of least resistance you'll figure it out beyond that everything about battle of the atom is hosted on xavierfiles.com that is also where isaac jenkins write weekly x-men articles uh some of them about a different character every week so i think this week coming up I will have just written about uh, Sean Koiman, uh, karma. karma, which is it's it's interesting. I have some opinions. There's going to be some unhappy people <laughs> with where she ends up on this list, but that's not the point. You can complain at me later. Uh, also have uh, weekly catch ups of different things, hints and rumors that are going on in the X-Men world. So go check that out. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. You can also find me on Twitter at Xavier Files. And Adam, where can people find you online? You guys can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. Um, I am trying to get, there will be new pages of uh, my Bishop and Jubilee fan comic, Bishop and Jubes, coming out every Monday for the next couple of months. 
So we hope you enjoy that new story. Um, and Kelly, where can we find you online? Uh, the best place is usually Twitter, which is at 79 semifinalist. Um, everything else, website, Tumblr, all that stuff is 1979 semifinalist. Curse you, Twitter and your character limits. <laughs> you jerks. <laughs> well, Kelly, thank you again for being on the show today. I mean, we wish you all the best. I think you're doing some amazing, amazing work that a lot of other writers should be looking up to. Um, so we really thank appreciate you so your time much. Tonight. Thanks for having me on. I'm sorry I talked so much. It's a problem I have. Oh, we like that. Oh, please. That, that was the point. <laughs> thanks so much, guys. Take care. <laughs> that That's great. Th thanks, Kelly. For everyone else, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!